This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore artworks, stories, and other great resources at artuk.org. You can also find Art UK and myself on your social media channel of choice. Art UK is on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. There's a museum dedicated to penises in Iceland, and there's an account dedicated to bums in museums on Twitter. But today, we're going to turn our attention to representations of vulvas in art with some help from our friends at the newly opened Vagina Museum. The Vagina Museum um, was founded in 2017 by our director, Florence Schechter, and it was in the response to basically seeing that there wasn't one. That's Sarah Creed, curator of the Vagina Museum. Florence's background is as a science communicator and she was creating some content about animal vaginas. Couldn't find any real kind of ratified research on it and thought, well, this is quite niche, so I'm going to look at human vaginas. And uh, in researching about them, realised that there was a penis museum in Reykjavik in Iceland, but there was no vagina equivalent anywhere in the world. So decided, why not make one? So the Vagina Museum existed as pop-up exhibitions and events across the UK for around two years. And then in March of 2019, we started a crowdfunding campaign for our first premises. And we funded almost £50,000 from just over 1,200 donors. And so we opened our first premises officially in November of 2019. So when I think about museums, I'm thinking about like objects and things being on display. So Mm -hmm. what is actually inside? Like, What can you see in the Vagina Museum? So our aim absolutely is to have um, objects and a collection. Um, As a curator, that's kind of my uh, main task over the coming years is to put a collection together. Um, But at the moment, um, we are either creating bespoke items, um, so like prop collection, or we are creating illustration work. We don't have any physical artworks or objects in our space at present for a few reasons, mainly logistics of the fact that we have a grade two listed space, so we can't screw into the walls or the floor or the ceiling, so we can't hang artwork in a traditional way. And also just the size of the space itself, it wouldn't be pragmatic of us to fill it with lots and lots of objects. And so I have to curate slightly more creatively. Um, thinking how we can engage visitors through objects and through items, but also through graphic panels and text. Um, So we're a bit more diverse in the way that we put our exhibitions together. But our main goal is to get permanent premises in the next five to 10 years. Um, And in that premises to have permanent traditional gallery displays, as you would potentially think in a museum, and then a temporary space. Within the topic of gynecological anatomy and sexual health, there are a wide range of subjects to explore. And that's before you start thinking about representations of vaginas in art and media. With their first exhibition titled Muff Busters, they've decided it was best to start with the basics. The main focus of the museum really is to educate the general public about the gynecological anatomy, even in my initial research in the first few months of me being in position, and Florence, our director, has um, more experience of this over the last few years, is just the lack of information that's out there and also misinformation um, that individuals with vulvas and vaginas um, read and ingest and take as fact. Um, But also for cis men and any individual who doesn't have a vagina or vulva to also understand the anatomy for their friends and their family and people in their lives that have it and just to make everybody and more knowledgeable about what goes on with it. I think the big thing for us is surveys that have been happening recently. So in March 2019, the government did a 
YouGov survey looking at statistics around how people could label an anatomical diagram, just a very basic diagram of a vulva, but also of the internal anatomy, so what we'd call the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, the things that we're all taught at school, really. And then also the external anatomy, which is the vulva with the labia and the clitoris, etc. And 52% of the individuals surveyed couldn't locate the vagina on that diagram. And when you split those results by gender, 47% of um, what the survey classified as women couldn't find the vagina on the diagram and locate it and, and properly annotate it. There's a perception that we're all taught basic sexual health and anatomy information in school. But Sarah told me that the anecdotal feedback from museum visitors indicates this education varies wildly from school to school, with some visitors saying they weren't taught any sexual education at all. With that in mind, before we get into a conversation on art, it may be good to do a little sex education housekeeping up front. When we talk about the vulva, that is essentially the external anatomy. So that is everything that you see on the outside of the female genitalia. So that is the uh, labia minora, labia majora, the clitoral hood, the clitoris, um, the urethra, and the vaginal opening. Um, the vagina is part of the internal anatomy. So it is a, a correct terminology for the gynecological anatomy because it is part of it, but it doesn't encompass the entire gynecological anatomy, which is what it's used for predominantly in kind of public discussion. Um, the vagina is part of a much grander scheme of of the anatomy um, and is part of the body that joins the vulva, the external part, to the internal anatomy, which is the uterus or the womb, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, all the things that kind of perhaps are more generally known. And so the vagina is essentially the tube or the canal, and it's often referred to as the vaginal canal, between the external anatomy and the internal anatomy. Depictions of vulvas can be found throughout the history of art, with the earliest known examples dating back tens of thousands of years. I was just having a debate with Florence about this in our office because I thought it was um, there is a stone carving in the Zavir Valley um, in France that is said to have been created 35,000 years ago. And it's a kind of very simple circular stone carving into a wall with a kind of slit up the middle. And it's been kind of much debated and kind of fawned over. And archaeologists have kind of come to the conclusion that through their kind of repertoire of analysing cave carvings in particular, that it, it is most like a vulva than anything else that they've seen. So they've kind of branded it as, as a depiction of a vulva on its own. But Florence pointed out to me um, that there is the Venus um, of Holfels, which that's dated between 40,000 and 35,000 years ago. And it's an upper Paleolithic Venus figurine. Venus figurines are some of the oldest works of prehistoric art known to researchers, and the Venus of Hull Fells is one of the oldest sculptures of a human. Many art history students begin survey classes with one of these small figures as an example. In my class, it was the Venus of Willendorf, which dates to around 30,000 BC. Venuses are often small but shapely figurines with pronounced breasts and vulvas. The head, arms, and feet may be minimized by comparison, and the legs often come down to a point. As these predate recorded history, researchers can only speculate on their function, but it's believed that they serve some ritualistic or symbolic purpose, perhaps relating to fertility. Moving forward in time, we can observe an increasingly conservative approach to representing vulvas in art. Through sculpture in the Greco-Roman period, there have been depictions of um, nudes, but they never showed a full 
vulva. And indeed, there's a much debate and speculation as well about things like pubic hair, like some do have pubic hair, some don't have pubic hair, and whether this was a like societal choice, you know, whether in a certain area of um, the Roman Empire, it, people just didn't have pubic hair and they didn't like it, they didn't think it was very nice. Um, whereas in other statues, there's quite a prominent, clear pubis and a depiction of hair and so like anywhere in the world it could just be that it's like i don't know when it, when in rome you you may have pubic hair but if you're in alexandria no thank you that we don't want to depict that while it is common to find depictions of penises in classical sculpture vulvas are often covered by strategically placed drapery even where a figure is uncovered as is the case with a sculpture of aphrodite dating to 350 bce in the glyptotech collection in munich the genital area may be depicted as a nondescript V-shape with no distinguishable vulva. This is a trend that carried forward through art history as artists began to look back to classical sculpture and mythology for inspiration. I read an article recently, for example, on kind of Renaissance paintings looking back at the Greco-Roman era. So, for example, even things like Venus and how there was this kind of real fascination in the Renaissance era, looking back on these kind of almost erotic imagery of um, the female form. So there'd be lots of bare breasts, you know, dresses that were almost about to fall off completely. You know, it was very suggestive and everything but the vulva is shown. And there was quite a debate as to whether this was um, due to it being almost teasing, so to speak, you know, that, that it was such a scandal to, to even show a bare breast and nipple, that to go all the way and show an entirely nude form with, with a vulva, an anatomically correct vulva as well, um, would be a overly suggestive and, and completely um, inappropriate, or it would be deemed completely inappropriate, or whether it was um, on purpose um, to, to be titillating and of interest. I, I don't necessarily agree with that theory. Um, I think it's a lot to do with the demureness of, of, of the woman historically, or, or it would have not been deemed appropriate to, to perhaps show an entire vulva. And also people had never really studied them or looked at them in great detail. And the way that the traditional artist and sitter work together it was quite common for models to be fully nude um, with artists um, so it wasn't like the subject matter wasn't right there in front of them but there was this discretion that was made um, and, and there was this kind of held back of like we're not gonna we're not gonna fully fully paint that or fully do all of that you know we've got to think that if you're going into like the 17th 18th 19th centuries a woman couldn't show her bare ankle let alone her vulva um and so this idea of um, what's appropriate and what's not i think played a big part in 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 the depiction of it in, in a more modern sense and by modern i mean like kind of post 1600 modern um not um contemporary modern Botticelli's famous painting, The Birth of Venus, offers a great example of the creative ways an artist would cover the vulva. In this painting, we see a fully nude Venus emerging from the ocean on a shell. Venus holds her left hand to her upper thigh, pressing her long red hair over her genitalia. I always found it fun that Botticelli chose to drape the hair in such a way as to suggest the image of the vulva laying right underneath. In the Manchester Art Gallery collection, there's a painting by John Rodham Spencer Stanhope titled Eve Tempted that uses a similar tactic. A nude Eve reaches for forbidden fruit as a frankly quite creepy serpent with a human head whispers to her to take it. Her long hair is draped across her lap and what do you know, perfectly covers her vulva. 
as with the earlier example of Venus figurines, it wasn't always the case that vulvas were treated so discreetly, and they could be found prominently displayed in some pretty surprising places. One of my favorite things are the Sheila gig, which are these um, figurative carvings of naked women that display really exaggerated vulva, and quite often they are like literally pulling open their vulvas and and they are um, architectural grotesque kind of carvings that are found on churches and castles and they are almost entirely found in Ireland and the UK and there's loads of different theories as to why they were put there but a lot of individuals think that they were there to ward off death and evil because the vulva was seen as the kind of origin of birth and new life Um, and so it was a literal like go away evil my vulva's gonna you know bear new life and purity and your death and evil can go away because they were positioned their position kind of over doors and windows so like the openings and all the kind of outlets of buildings so um as architectural gargoyles and grotesques are used in that way for other buildings and churches and cathedrals and the like it's kind of a, a summative evaluation that it's probably more likely that they're kind of warding off something in some in some sense but also um there's there's quite a discussion about the kind of sacred nature of the female form and the meanings and functions of the vulva and are we kind of you know looking back on this with a a modern gaze and just assuming that they are a, a grotesque um you know gargoyle so to speak that is warding off evil or did they hold some sort of significance perhaps religiously or societally or culturally, you know, if people were going into churches and and there's a a huge statue above the door with a big vulva, are they trying to like bless a marriage going into that church or, you know, hoping that they are um, blessed with childbirth and fertility. So there's not, that there are several kind of academic studies that are being completed and ongoing about the Sheila gig. The Vagina Museum have commissioned their own replica of a Sheila gig that helps preserve the good vibes in their space. You can also find examples on artuk.org in the Kindle Museum and Glasgow Women's Library collections. As for other art historical examples of vulvas, there's probably one that's the most notorious of them all. Gustave Courbet's Origin of the World was commissioned in 1866, and it was believed to be commissioned by Khalil Bey, who was a Turkish um, businessman and diplomat who was living in Paris. And he was seen to be like quite the playboy, you know, living it up in Paris and was building quite a large erotic art collection. And so he specifically commissioned this work from Courbet, very, very specifically wanting like a close-up view of the genitals of an abdomen of of a naked woman lying back, you know, legs spread, vulva fully on show. And there's been a lot of debate over the the structure and the composition of the piece because it is such a framed, specific view of a vulva, um, of a vulva with, uh, in, in in many senses, uh, you know, a lot of pubic hair, um, and and quite kind of erotically arranged. There was a lot of debate for a long time as to why it existed and, and who had commissioned it. And a lot of art research has happened since, looking at correspondence and letters between Courbet and clients and Courbet and Khalil Bey himself, um, just kind of basically ratified the fact that he commissioned it. And the model has also been speculated over for decades because it just would have been a huge taboo for any model to sit like this um even in um 19th century paris which by all means was very you know bohemian very artistic 
very free spirited and there was as I said there was lots of models who would who would sit and and lie fully nude for paintings but they would just never have their genitalia painted um in that way and so it was a huge moment and a bold move really for Corbet who at the time was you know a very successful artist known for creating very classical 19th century paintings the model for the original world was believed to have been Joe Hiffenen um, for a long, long time. And Joanna Hiffenen was James Whistler's lover. And she was with him um, during the time um, of the painting. Um, and the reason why that, that theory stuck around for a while, I think, was because not that long after the painting was commissioned and um, first noted and displayed, the two men briefly fell out. And it was believed that this was because Gustav had had an affair with Joe Hiffenen. Because, you know, Whistler saw the painting and was like, hang on a minute, that's that's my girlfriend's vulva. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, <laughs> However, that has since been completely dispelled, much to my upset, because I was like, what a great story. Can you imagine walking into a private salon and being like, hang on a minute? (laughs) But Joe Hiffenham was also um, a redhead. um, And so there was lots of speculation as to the, the, obviously the pubic hair in the painting is very, very dark, almost black in colour. And that's not to say that somebody with um, red hair wouldn't have dark pubic hair, but that was one of the kind of tipping points as to people thinking it wasn't her. However, last year... Um, as far as I'm aware, I think it was the la- end of last year, um, an art historian was reading some correspondence between Khalil Bey and Gustav Courbet and a opera ballet dancer called Constance um, Canoe, who was Khalil Bey's lover. And she was the, his lover at the time of the painting being commissioned. Um, she would have been around 34 years old and she was a retired ballet dancer by that point. But the correspondence is very suggestive of saying, Corbet saying, and I painted her like in all her glory, mm. um, which people have speculated means that it's her. Um, because he there's very suggestive language throughout the text, like, you know, it was all of her in all her glory, you know, lots of insinuation that he painted her nude. And I know that there has also been a, a recent study of a head found. Um, and it's got everyone very excited at the Musée d'Orsay um, because they think it may have been the top part of the canvas. They think that he may have painted an entire nude canvas of a reclining woman. Yeah, but that he's like cut out the 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 frame that we see now um because they've kind of aligned the the head with the with the vulva and the abdomen and it's all of the same scale mm. and the woman's kind of like relinquishing herself backwards um kind of lulling over a sofa and the head is kind of undisputably Constance Canoe so um that's very exciting because it's almost like an art history myth has been solved yeah. um potentially like we'll never know because they never released who it was but what I love is that even now, um, it just causes such a stir. You know, I, I was at the Musée d'Orsay earlier this year and people just gather around it mm. like, oh my God, like I can't believe it. <laughs> and and I think that, you know, the fact that it's over 200 years old and it still causes such a stir, I think that he'd be thrilled by that. Yeah. Moving into the modern and contemporary era, we see an increase in depictions of vulvas, particularly from women artists. Judy Chicago's powerful 1979 mixed-media work, The Dinner Party, is one of the most famous examples. That has these kind of 39 place settings in a triangle formation, and each plate represents an iconic woman in history. So there's like a you know, Virginia Woolf plate, um, there's a Georgia O'Keeffe plate, and they have these like really very beautiful ceramic ornamental vulvas often kind of in the shape of like flowers or butterflies. Um, and it's a real celebration, I think, of 
of the anatomy and of the kind of empowerment of these women. And if I remember correctly, I think it's been seen by over like 15, 16 million people now. You know, it's really toured all over the world and it has like such a big social impact, I think. What I quite like is that there's like artworks within the artwork. So, you know, the, the place setting's always the same, the formation's always the same, but, you know, you can go and look at one plate or you can go and look at all 39, um, but you're still going to take away like a real experience from it, which is kind of great. And I think Georgia O'Keeffe's an interesting one to touch on um, because the reason why she was, um, Judy Chicago talks about this, she was kind of given the place setting, was largely because of her floral paintings, which have had all this speculation about whether or not she was depicting vulvas. So she has these beautiful paintings and flower series that that look very um, kind of vulval. But she herself has kind of really denied this and almost said it was like a Freudian interpretation of her paintings. Mm -hmm. You know, she was like, you can can see what you want in them, but they're they're not vulvas. And I think that there has been quite a contemporary reclamation of those paintings in wanting them to be vulvas. But they look so much like vulvas, some of them. <laughs> they do. I know. And, and I often wonder, it's really interesting. I think because she so kind of vehemently denies it, I don't, it's one of those artistic things sometimes, isn't it? I don't know whether that she does that on, she does mm-hmm. that on purpose, you know, to get that discussion going and to have people really kind of debate the pieces um, or whether she genuinely never saw it. Um, I, I really doubt that she didn't ever see it. Um, but I quite like her her absolute stubbornness to be like, nope, absolutely not. She's like she's never wavered from that. Whereas you have people like Anish Kapoor who have created very obvious pieces that are very vaginal in depiction, really. So they're kind of almost depicting the vagina, this canal, this kind of chasm, so to speak. But I think he also says it's not what that is, doesn't he? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, I've read a lot of interviews that he's done where he's like, no, that's not a vagina. Um, but then there are pieces, um, you know, several years later where he'll be like, oh, well, you know, people interpret my work how they want to. Like, maybe it is mm. a vagina. So I don't think he's ever absolutely said no or yes. Um, but again, that's very of him and his pieces. Like he he very much likes multi-layered interpretation yeah. in his pieces. I know that he had the piece that was at the Palace of Versailles not so long ago, which is like the French horn, this big gilded kind of um, steel horn shape. And he said in a press release there that it, it depicted the vagina of the queen who lived lived in the palace and it just caused this like absolute outrage and people were like I can't believe that you've put a huge vagina on the palace of Versailles lawn <laughs> like like what is wrong with you um and I think that he um he quite liked that controversy a little bit I think while some artists are coy about the gynecological references in their work others are very explicit in more ways than one politics art sex and health collide in the work of artists like Annie Sprinkle she was a former sex worker who did a piece in the 1980s called Public Cervix Announcement, in which she created a performance piece uh, where she lay back reclining on a, on a low stage and inst- inserted a speculum into her vagina. And she invited the public to come and look at her cervix. Um, and it was obviously quite controversial when it came out but it ended up being so popular that it toured in the 1990s and in fact in the mid-2000s quite a lot of cancer charities took up the phrase public cervix announcement to um, get people to take pap tests um, 
for cervical cancer. Um, so it had quite a societal impact as well as cultural um, because it was the first time like a lot of people had even seen a cervix. But I think obviously the controversy was courted with her background and the fact that she was sex worker positive, had had that experience herself. Um, so it was a real interesting amalgamation of like politics and art and health. Um, and also, obviously, um, Jamie McCartney, who is on our advisory board, um, who created the Great Wall of Vagina, which is 400 cast vulvas on 10 boards and 10 groupings that he created kind of in response to this idea of like, what is a, a, a kind of artistically idolized or idealized vulva and the kind of rise in cosmetic surgery around the vulva and, and people not seeing what the vulvas looked like. And Jamie's great. He's a big advocate of our museum. So he's a friend of ours. One of the things that's great about the Vagina Museum is their educational and inclusive approach. In their inaugural exhibition, Muffbusters, they educate visitors on anatomical terms and sexual health, but also on the difference between sex and gender. A big ethos of us as a museum is also not defining individuals by their anatomy. So we are a, a transgender and intersex ally as an organization, and so talk quite prominently about the fact that not all women have a vagina and indeed not everybody with a vagina or a vulva identifies themselves as a woman and so I think it's really important to have both individuals um, who identify as male or female or any gender of their choice or non-binary even that, that they are all engaging with it as a subject matter. If you enjoyed this conversation today there are two things you can do. First, you can head over to the Art UK website and find images and links related to this discussion. Next, you can visit the one and only Vagina Museum, located in London. Before I sign off, it makes me so happy to see thousands of you listening, but we don't have nearly as many reviews. I'd like to ask you to please take a minute to subscribe and leave a little review so that others can also discover this series. As always, I thank you for listening and please join us again next time.